school on a mission trip. And in it, it was interesting that evening we got to listen to, I mean, he literally talked, I think, for five hours straight about the entire trip and all the things that had happened and it took place. And then even for Kelly and I, as we prayed for him to go down there and was curious what God would do in his heart to be able to experience and see all the things that he did in the Dominican Republic. And I don't know if you've ever had one of those opportunities to experience something face-to-face with, in fact, I don't know, Isaac's the one, go back real, real quick there, Melissa, to the previous picture. There you go. He's the one with the hand on the hip, sporting the recess t-shirt, yeah, in the Dominican Republic. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity or experience to come face-to-face with something like unspeakable poverty before. Or maybe you've been in a context where somebody or maybe several were very, very sick around you. Or maybe even you've seen it in the news like with the Philippines when you witness natural disasters like that. If you get around that environment, it could be very disorienting. And what I mean by that is in a moment you become acutely aware of someone else's great need and at the same time your great wealth and blessing. Like, it's disorienting because in this moment, there's sort of this collision in your thinking about you see somebody who has, like, just one shirt and literally one pants, and you can recall all the clothes in your closet that you don't even wear anymore. Or you become aware of all the conveniences that you don't ever think about in the moment, things like flipping a switch to turn on the electricity, being able to actually flush a toilet, the ability to open up a pantry full of food and pull out a box of Kraft macaroni and cheese when you want it because it is delicious. I don't know, you've probably seen maybe those uh, first world problem uh, pictures. you ever seen those kind of making fun of kind of we get so caught up in complaining about things when truly we have it pretty good. Here's a few of my graduates. You know, I want to eat my chips, but then I can't hear the TV. That's first, first world problems. Or this one here, my smartphone changes LOL to LOL, making me sound overexcited. There's so many unpopped kernels in my microwave popcorn. I complain about all sorts of things. Two more here. All of my friends have laptops, but I only have a desktop. Last one here. My raisin brand had too many raisins in it this morning. See, let me post that on Facebook. I'm so upset. See, and it's the disorientation that sometimes can be difficult to bear because what it does is, in that context, it reveals every self-centered, materialistic, consumeristic, self-focused thought and action in your life. It makes you think twice about the things that you really complain about. In fact, I would have, when I remember when I was in college, I had friends who would go do mission trips for the entire summer in Africa. And so they'd come back from places like Kenya and having these experiences of great poverty. And as soon as they arrived back on college campus in USA, they literally went through about a depression because they didn't know how to reconcile what they'd just seen and what they'd just experienced with their life back here at home and sort of that collision that was taking place. But it's those experiences in life that we can recognize that God often uses to move us into things like compassion and gratitude and generosity. We find that we're being transformed in the midst of them that we want to be generous. We want to be sacrificial and compassionate and grateful because of what it is that we experience. And I was, my, my son's trip to the Dominican Republic, uh, they would send an email maybe once a day, kind of an update on what's going on. And they sent an email one particular day that told a story of this sort of generosity. Let me read it to you. Here's what they sent to us, parents. We spent the morning at Emmanuel House where we played with the kids. We sang songs and shared Bible stories, which was then followed by a demonstration of compassion by one of the students. We went to the edge of a small path, led down a hill on a trail that eventually ended at a home. 
Now, to all of us, it looked less like a home and more like a fort we would build in the woods when we were kids. It had three small rooms, no bathroom, no kitchen, no appliances, nothing but two beds and clothes everywhere. Twelve people lived in this tiny shack surrounded by trash and mud. The father was very gracious as 15 or so of us laterally made the five steps from behind the blanket door to the back door where there was a meager fire. He smelled bad. He was dressed like a, in a golf-like shirt and shorts that were caked with dirt. He didn't have all his teeth, and when I looked down, I saw his feet. He was obviously barefooted, but what happened next was God at work. One of our students stayed back with Profe. That was the name of one of the professors there, Profe, and spoke to the father. Then the student took his off his own nice new sneakers and gave them to the father. And I followed the student up the trail back to the main road, his socks filthy with mud, being careful not to step on some of the trash that littered the path, all the while being reminded of Jesus' own words, what you do for the least of these, you do for me. Now, after hearing that story, my guess is that that decision to give his shoes was probably a relatively easy decision. It was that moment where God is using this experience to move someone in compassion and gratitude and generosity. I don't picture the kid going, I guess I should give my shoes. I mean, no, I picture because of this moment, there's something in his heart that changes that he wants to. And I'll share these stories with you because Isaac's going to come to the third service. So the third service won't hear these. And don't tell him I told you because he'd be really embarrassed. But it was interesting as parents to listen to Isaac come home and talk about, you know, he had like $30 spending money that he could get whatever he wanted to. And what he decided to do with the $30 is he began to pay for groceries for mothers who were in the grocery store there in the Dominican Republic. And they went to visit an orphanage, an all-girls orphanage, and he was so moved by his experience with one 10-year-old girl named Cassandra that the, the night that he came home, he got on a website to the orphanage where you could sponsor a kid and is sponsoring Cassandra every month for $30. I mean, he typed in his own bank account information, so $30 every month goes directly to Cassandra. And those are the moments where as a parent you go, God did great things in that week with our son. It moved him in compassion and generosity. Now, it's a secret, right? You're not going to tell him? Don't tell him. A third service won't get this. Now, sometimes that even happens in relationships. I don't know if there are people in your life that you look at, and when you see them, you just think, I would do anything for you. Like, nothing is too great. There's nothing too costly. There's not an ounce of obligation in it or duty or you have to or resentment. It's be- the nature of the relationship is, oh, no, if you need anything, I-, I will make sure that you have it. Nothing is too great. I've heard stories back in World War II where men were in the foxholes and the trenches and all of a sudden a grenade comes over and there's no time to throw it back out and instinctively one of the soldiers just jumps on top of the grenade, the grenade explodes and he used his body to absorb the impact, giving his own life to save his uh, fellow soldiers who were around him. I heard one story about a soldier after that incident happened just made a promise that if I make it home alive from this war, I will make sure that that man's widow and children never lack anything. And so it was just his, he just took it on himself as, and not like out of a, oh, I have to, but out of this sense of gratitude for what that man did to rescue him and to save his life. What would be too much for his widow? What would be too much for his children if they needed anything? He would make sure that they had it. That those sorts of experiences transforms us. They change us. They reach deep within our soul and they pull out of us things like compassion and gratitude and generosity. And when you've truly experienced those moments, whether it is in a third world country or an overwhelming rescue of some sort or experience in your life, it changes everything. It calls you to be a different kind of a person. A person who doesn't just visit compassion, but lives in compassion. 
a person who doesn't just from time to time exhibit moments of gratitude, but your life can be characterized as they're grateful. Not a person who might have a few moments of generosity, but someone who at the very core of who they are, no, they're generous. They live open-handed and open-hearted. See, here's the thing for those of us who are following after Jesus. Paul, the Apostle Paul, assumes this is the experience that we've all had in Jesus. That we all have been literally rescued. I mean, not only in this life, but the life to come by Jesus. And so, what would be too great for him? Like when you consider the price that he's paid to extend to us, not just the forgiveness of sins, but an eternal inheritance, what really is too much for him to have experienced that kind of rescue would, of course, then result for us in complete transformation of our characters, that we now live lives that could be characterized and described as compassionate and grateful and generous, that we live open-handed with what we have for the sake now of the one who rescued us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why Paul can write to the church in Corinth, and he'll say this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, assuming, listen, I know you've had this experience in Jesus, and it's changed everything. It's changed even the nature of who you are. He'll say this in verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches, just a group of churches in the area of Macedonia. And he'll note, look, even in the midst of their very severe trial, They had this overflowing joy, and even in their extreme poverty, it welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service, this service to the Lord's people. Noting their generosity, he says, and they exceeded even our expectations. I mean, they gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. And so we urged Titus, who was a co-worker with, with Paul, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, he started the Corinthians now, in faith and speech and knowledge, in complete earnestness, earnestness and in the love that we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. Paul will say, listen, I'm not commanding you. I just want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Now, this is interesting. Paul will say, this is kind of a test of your love, like where your money, money meets, the right, rubber meets the road here. Like if you really love like you say you love, it will be evident by something. And so I'm just testing the sincerity of what is it you say. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that through his poverty you might become rich. Here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first, not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. See, what Paul is talking about is that you've experienced this in Jesus, right? I mean, he was rich, but he became poor. For your sakes, you've, you've inherited that generosity of Jesus, and it changes everything. And now we have this internal desire to want to be generous. And see, this is why you hear sometimes in churches a conversation about tithing. I don't know if you know what tithing is. It literally means like 10% of your income you give over to the Lord. And listen, I'm, I'm not against that. I, I think that's a great principle. I think that's a great starting point. Kelly and I have committed our lives to tithing. But Paul's talking about something entirely different here. Like, this is not about sitting down, crunching the numbers, and writing a check for 10%. What he's talking about is something that's going on inside of us because of Jesus that, over, that overflows in the desire to be a generous person, a grateful person, a person who has compassion. 
It, it, it comes from something deep within. That's why Paul will go on in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. He'll say this. Now remember, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly, they reap sparingly. That's just a law of nature. And whoever sows generously will reap generously. And each of you should give what you've decided where? In your heart to give. Like what's welling up out of you because of your experience in Christ Jesus. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion, not, I guess I should give my shoes because the guy's barefoot. Because God loves a cheerful giver. And listen, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. It's that idea of he's blessing you so you can be a blessing to others. As it's written, they, are, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge your harvest, the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us, your generosity, it will result in thanksgiving to God. Like people around will go, well, praise God. Let's give thanks to God for this. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. See, a heart that's trying to legalistically apply a tithe is totally different than a heart that knows one thing. I've been given a life in Jesus, and nothing is great for him. And how can I serve generously out of that? You can see stories in the Bible. Like, remember that story where Jesus is at a Pharisee's house eating dinner and that woman walks in? I mean, interrupts the entire dinner. And it says that she pours out on Jesus. She anoints him with a very expensive perfume that was worth a year's wages. Which if you were just kind of put that in our time and our place, you know, the average wage around here is about $35,000 a year. Could you imagine somebody coming in and just pouring out some sort of perfume on Jesus that was worth $35,000? Could you imagine? That could be scandalous. And it was in the story. Everyone around is complaining. What a waste of money. How could she do that? I mean, they're kind of letting her have it, and Jesus stops the whole thing and says, oh, no, leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing for me. And what you see is that because of the man who's sitting at that table, she's living open-handed with gratitude and generosity. What is too great for this man? And in her mind, nothing. All she knows is the man who's sitting at the table. She loves that man. He has rescued her from a life that she needed to leave behind. And as a result, nothing is too great for him. You don't get a picture that she's home crunching the numbers, trying to figure out, well, how am I going to pay off the, phone, the cell phone bill and make sure Termagard gets their cut and seeing if there's anything left in the fund that they can be a little token for Jesus. No, no, no. Because of what she's experienced, great compassion and gratitude and generosity that goes along with being a follower of Jesus. And there's something about this that goes behind the passage we've been looking at now for the last two weeks and now this morning, a third week. It's still in 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, this is where we've been for the last two weeks, talking about the mission and vision of the Living Stones Church, what God has called us to. I've tried to share lots of stories about what's happened here over the last six or seven years. If you missed it, I really do want to encourage you to go back to our website and go online and listen to the podcast. It will give you a heartbeat of the Living Stones Church. But a very special passage to us, it's in 1 Peter 2, says this in verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, and we've been talking about uh, what Peter has in mind here is the stones of the temple in Jerusalem. 
See, if you wanted to meet God, you found him in the temple. And what Peter is saying is, now God lives in Jesus. He's the living stone. And he turns to the church and says, and you too are living stones. If anyone wants to find God and encounter God, he can do so in you. And what Peter says is, now God is building you into a spiritual house. We talked about this last week quite a bit. To be a holy priesthood. Not just a few paid professionals, but we all have something to do in the house, that spiritual house that God is building. But here I want you to see what comes next. Here's where I want to go this morning. Not only is he building in us a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, but what does it say next? Offering what? Spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I want to look at this for just a moment, this idea of offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean? And what I'd say is spiritual, the word spiritual here, does not mean that it's not tangible. I, I don't think Peter is saying, yeah, it's some sort of ethereal concept of yielding and giving to God, something that really can't be measured or seen or that's real. I don't think that's what he means at all. Remember, Peter is using this analogy of the temple, that we're living stones. That's where, you, if you want to find God, that's where you find him. But if you'll remember, in the temple, literally, what you brought to God was a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice. And what Peter is saying is, Now you're going to offer spiritual sacrifices. Again, not something that's ethereal, but we're not doing animal sacrifices anymore. Now what we're going to offer is our own lives. And you'll see this several times in the New Testament. Romans 12 being another one, offer your bodies as living sacrifice. I mean, there's always this idea of now we give our... It's not about here's another lamb or here's a pigeon, but rather we offer our very selves. And what is a sacrifice? Giving a sacrifice involves permanently giving something that has value to the giver. And therefore involves giving up something that most people would rather keep for themselves. It means I'm going to be open-handed in my life with God. I'm going to give my life to God and the things that he's blessed me with for him to use as he sees fit. It's to live a life as a living stoner that could be described as compassionate, grateful, and generous. And if you will let me, I would like to challenge you this morning and encourage you to be generous in this spiritual house that I believe Jesus is building. And he isn't building it with some magical and mystical means. He's building it with the very things that we bring to him. And he's always worked like that. And I don't know why I would like to ask God this question, but God has always used the things that his people were open-handed with. And since the beginning, he's called his people to cooperate with him in this venture. By the way, that is the beginning of our mission statement here, to cooperate with God in his mission of love. But God has never written a a check from the bank of heaven. He has always used the generosity of his people. This is how he works. He gives us blessings, not just for ourselves, but so we can be a blessing to others. And now he usually does amazingly more than we would ever think or imagine, but he at least begins with our generosity. For example, remember that story where Jesus feeds 5,000 people? Everyone does that? You know how that happened? You know how that started out when Jesus were able, was able to feed 5,000 people? It wasn't like just some hocus-pocus magic trick and all of a sudden he's got bread and fish. What does Jesus start with? What's in the hands? Well, what's in the hands? If you're looking around, I don't know. This boy here brought a, a sack of lunch. Well, what's in it? There's five loaves of bread and there's two fish. I'll start with that. And so they begin. He hands that over to Jesus. And what does Jesus do with it? He multiplies it in such a way where it feeds, in the end, 5,000 people. But what was the beginning point? a boy who's willing to be generous. And God has always seemed to have that as his starting point, our own generosity. And praise God, what little we seem to be able to offer him, it's okay because he's able to do amazing, miraculous things with it. My experience is sometimes people find that in, in their situation, they think to themselves, all I really have is five bucks a week. What's really the 
point of that? I mean, it just, that, that, that can't do much. And so in the end, they don't give anything because they've already disqualified themselves as it's just not, it's just, it's not much. But what I'd say is it's just a spiritual principle at work, but Jesus seems to take $5 that's offered in a spirit and heart of gratitude and generosity, and he could take that $5 and like those loaves and fish, turn it into something incredible. And it might not be feeding 5,000 people, but it might be reaching out to the kids at Monroe School. And in that moment, the starting point for Jesus is, well, what is in your hands? What do you have to offer? What is the beginning place for you of compassion and gratitude and generosity? And like that bread, and really, and this is our story, isn't it? I mean, when I think about what we've been able to do in terms of recess for eight weeks, I mean, for three years in a row, I mean, it isn't like, ooh, look at the rich church at some day thing he's done, where it's like, no, look, we were able to offer this by way of time and money, and we get to watch Jesus go, I'll take that and watch this. Don't you remember what Jesus himself said about hearts of generosity? It's interesting. He'll say this in front of his disciples. It's in Luke chapter 21. There's a widow in the temple who gives, it says, two very small copper coins. Like even the text says, it's very small. And everyone else is giving a lot of big checks, and, you know, they're, they get a lot more money. And Jesus sees this poor widow give two very small copper coins, and he turns to his disciples and says, did you see that woman right there? She just gave more than anybody else because she gave out of her poverty. Everybody else gave out of their abundance. And I can't help but think of God the Father. Like, what do you think God the Father is going to do with those two very small copper coins? I mean, do you think he's actually going to say to his son, Jesus, I'm sorry, son, I know you're trying to make a good point here, but really it's just two small copper coins. I can't do much with that. I, I don't think so. I think because of his son, the Father is going to use those two small copper coins and do something significant in the kingdom of God. Because God always begins with our generosity. He begins with what we offer him. He starts with our spiritual sacrifice. And this is how God will build this house. And we've spent a lot of time the last two weeks talking about the mission and vision of this church. And I've tried to share stories of things that God has done and how over the past several years that he's done some pretty amazing things in our community. And if I rolled it all back in terms of the power of God, how did he do this? Because you were willing to offer a spiritual sacrifice. And included in that has been your generosity and willingness to support the house. And I really do believe with everything, I mean, I'm banking my life on this, that God has a whole lot more in store for us. And I really do believe he's called us to take over the world starting on the south side of South Bend. Like this is what, I'm, I'm, like I want to commit the rest of my life to this venture, believing that, no, I think God is going to take over. Now I might not be able to see it in my lifetime, but he's going to take over the world starting on the neighborhoods of the south side of South Bend. And I shared last week our capacity issues and how we need to remedy that. And I shared plans to plant other Livingstones churches. And in the end, I can't get around this reality. It is this. Mission and vision cost money. There's an operating, a house costs money. And you know this, right? I mean, you have households. You know you have to have an operational budget for your household. And what's interesting to me is anytime two people get married, there's an immediate collision usually over how to handle money. Now, I'm not saying it's always intense, and sometimes there is some compatibility, and you can get over it, but the reason why you have that initial tension or compatibility issues or collision is because no two people have the same thoughts or values or experiences or knowledge or upbringing when it comes to money. You are all like financial snowflakes. No two of you are alike. And some of you grew up in families where you didn't have money at all, so you know what it's like to live in poverty or close to it. You know what it feels like where all of your friends are going to be able to get those things, but you know you won't get those things. And that feeling of knowing that I might as well not even ask because my family can't afford those things. And some of you grew up in families where you did have money, 
but, you, but your parents never spent it. Like your dad or your mom, maybe, they, would, they were tightwads, so to speak. Like they would buy the two-ply toilet paper, get home, and then undo it so it's one-ply to save money. Whew, that's rough. Others of you grew up in families that didn't have money but spent it anyway. You come from different backgrounds, issues of debt and savings and budgeting and giving, and most of it you learn from your family of origin. And sometimes... Some of you grew up in a house that never talked about money. And I would say that's probably the most unhealthy of contexts. And then we come into this house, and it gets a little awkward and uncomfortable and tense. And is he talking about money? Oh, my goodness, it's my first week. It's a money sermon. I've invited my friends. Is he talking about money? Listen, I get it. I feel it, too. Listen, everyone on staff knows. You know what what topic I hate to preach on more than any other? You know what it is? It's money. I mean, even though Jesus talks about it more than any other topic besides the kingdom of God, I don't like it. And I know it's, it's my own family of origin. Like, I remember the, the tapes that go off in my own head when it takes place. Like, I remember watching religious TV, and I watched the TV evangelists who are always in Hawaii, and they got lays on, but they're still asking for money, and there's something in me that just cringes inside. Or when I hear about churches that spend squadrillions, and I don't even know if that's a number, but I made it up, squadrillions on buildings and on things and private jets and... I get an ick factor. There's something in me that just goes, oh, I don't like that at all. And I know it's my upbringing. You know, my dad was the preacher here for years, like 12, 13 years. And all growing up, you know what car my dad always drove? I mean, always. You know what it is? You're looking at it? It's a Ford Pinto. Like, some of you are younger. You don't even know what I'm talking about here, right? Like, this is, like, this isn't even like a classic car that it comes back. The Ford Pinto. We had every color, every shape. I mean, hatchbacks. We had station wagons. We had the kind that, you know, if it got hit in the gas tank, it exploded. So it was, like, bad, right? And you know why? Because I had that tape going off that my dad and my grandparents, that servants of Jesus, like pastors and preachers, they're to live humbly. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a pastor driving a nice car, but if I see one in a Mercedes-Benz that looks like that, I don't mind confessing. There's something in me that I have to fight off a lot of judgment, and I'm just, I'm just being honest. And in fact, um, the new Pope, Pope, I'm a huge fan. Like, I love Pope Francis. Like, everything I've seen of Pope Francis, I really love. And I think the reason why is because he comes from poverty. And so he kind of has that heart of simplicity. And when I hear the stories of things that he's rejected, like, he's not going to live in the papal mansion. He's going to live in a normal apartment like everybody. He's going to ride the bus like everybody. Like, he's just, there's a humility to him that I I like. He seems to get that simplicity. He he understands literally the teachings of Jesus about the least of these. But just as it's unhealthy to not talk about money in your house, it's unhealthy to not talk about money in this house. So the good news for you is is I rarely do it because I hate it. But I do want to talk about money in this house and say, the house needs it. Every house has to have an operating budget because that's just wise. Because you know in your own house what happens if there's no money, right? If no money is ever coming in, there's no income, the house quickly becomes non-functioning. It comes to a halt. Next thing you know, you have stapled or pasted to your front door. What is it? It's a, it's a disconnect notice saying what? We're going to start to turn off the utilities, and then you're in a world of trouble. Or things break down because that's just what happens in a house, and you can't make any repairs because you can't afford it. All of a sudden, the trash is no longer picked up. You've got sanitation issues. The yard is overrun, and in the end, it just looks like an abandoned house. It's bad. And this house has an operating budget, and it isn't about utilities or trash or yard work. That's not, that's not our operating expenses. Ours is about ministry. It's about changed lives. It's about seeing people come to know, listen, that God is crazy in love with them. 
And I'm hoping the last two weeks I've been able to tell enough stories that kind of reveal, like, this is, what, this is what God has done in this place. Why? Because of your generosity, because of our operational budget here in this house. It has allowed us to do some amazing things. And sometimes you just need living, tangible examples of what that operational budget of this house does. And so um, Doug Harsh put together for us just kind of a quick video from our barbecue and baptism that we had in August. And I want you to see this only because, uh, I mean, well, one, because it's great. I always love them. But... Um, this is our operate. This is kind of like the culmination of, yeah, people come to discover that God is crazy in love with them, and that's what we do. And so here's a snapshot of here's what your investment in the house culminates in. Look at this. Confession of faith, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. William, based on your confession of faith, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Based on your confession of faith, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So your confession of faith, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. My son, my son, my son. Because of your confession of faith, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Sarah, because of the confession of your faith, I now baptize you in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Based on your confession of faith, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. your confession of faith, I now baptize you in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Woo! Never best in your confession of faith, I now baptize you in the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
Um, based on your confession of faith, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right, Chris, so based on your confession of faith, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Alana, based upon your confession of faith, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's, a, that's what our operational budget looks like. And when we get together as staff or as leaders and talk about ministry and vision and plans, there's always attached to it a cost. And sometimes we're able to move forward and sometimes we're trying to avoid standing still because of a cost. But I do want to just close with, here's some things you should know about giving here at the Living Stones Church. Let me give these to you. Number one, all that we have to do ministry-wise here at the Living Stones Church is what you give here at the Living Stones Church. Meaning, in a moment when those chicken buckets go by your row, that's how we do ministry. There's no other sources. Like, we have no other money coming in. For like, we're not a, we are a, a non-denominational autonomous church, which means we don't have a, some denominational body that gives us money, nor do we send money to a larger denomination. Everything that we do is what you put in. So if we take over the world for Jesus, it happens because of what you put in those chicken buckets. Number two, we live week by week. Now, I'm not sure I'm bragging about this because I'm not sure this is a good idea, but it is the truth of where we're at. We live week to week. Now, one, I don't think churches should hoard money. I don't think you give sacrificially so we can just stockpile it away in some savings account and we don't know what we're going to do with it, but, you know, someday we might use it. I think when you give, it's because you intend for it to be used in ministry. Now, if there's a plan, I'm okay with saving, but I don't think we should just hoard cash. And So as a result, we live week to week. We have no large accounts with a huge amount of cash in it. Now, there's problems with that. Number one, if something significant happens, we don't have money to pay for it. Like, you know, you've got to replace this. We, oops. And the second problem that comes with that is sometimes there's cash flow issues, which I would really love to get out of in 2014, meaning sometimes, uh, like when we buy children's ministry, ministry curriculum, we pay for at once lump sum for the whole year. So that could be a pretty significant lump sum. Or when an insurance bill comes due, it's kind of a one lump sum. And so sometimes if you're living week to week, that can cause cash flow issues for you. But if you think to yourself that, well, what difference does it make if I give this week or not? <laughs> it matters because we live week to week. And so, uh, like, if you're going to be gone for the next four weeks, hey, that's no problem. You'll see in the bulletin there's an online giving option. And you're thinking, well, what's the point of that? We live week to week, and it really does help us. Number three, you should know this. Uh, your pastor, meaning me, I don't write or sign any checks. I do not have access to our bank accounts. I don't know what you give. Like the checks you write, the envelopes that you put in, I don't get to see that. I, too, have an operational budget here, and everything that I or anyone else on staff spends is accountable to our elders and to our stewardship team. In fact, uh, Jeff Hammett, there's a picture of Jeff up here. There was. Is it gone? It crashed. Jeff Hammett, he's a very good-looking man. Uh, there will be a picture of him up here. 
He leads our stewardship team. They are entrusted with making sure that the money that you give is handled in a way that is above reproach. And so I want you to know this is a safe place to give, and there are checks and balances to, in place to ensure that I can't just go purchase a hot tub for my office no matter how bad I would like one. Number four, and I need you to hear this correctly, uh, we are living stoners living on the south side of South Bend. Okay, let me say that. So I don't want this to be misheard or misinterpreted. I'm, I'm not saying we're hillbillies. I'm not saying we're rednecks necessarily. I'm not saying we're cheapskates. I'm not saying we're tightwads. But if duct tape will fix it, we will use duct tape. In fact, this week we had just, I mean, even as I was sharing this, we had two illustrations. Uh, our church van, which if you've ridden, you know we don't spend a lot of money. Uh, the church van, uh, it has, in terms of temperature controls, it's either going to be air conditioning or heat. It doesn't do both. And we have to once a year, twice a year take it to the mechanic where he does a duct tape trick uh, to turn on the opposite temperature. So we just took it this week to get the heat on now in the van, and he did it with a duct tape. Uh, one of the uh, filing cabinet in Angie's office was messed up, and the south side locksmith that we hired came and with duct tape fixed it. Like, that's how we roll here. And so Jeremy, I was sharing this with the staff uh, on Thursday, and Jeremy's sitting there kind of new, kind of quiet, didn't say anything, and kind of look at Jeremy. I, I don't know. I hope you're okay with this. <laughs> Jeremy goes, are you kidding me? Is this if I was born to be at this place? <laughs> like, <laughs> like the men's bathroom, that paper towel dispenser, like the, the whole thing, that it, it's broken. Like we don't just go buy a new one. We put a little Velcro strip on it, and it works just fine right now. So you don't ever have to worry about this church asking you to invest money so that we can go build anything gold-plated or fancy. You could just walk around, and you'll see that, no, no, we don't. We, we know as a church, they say you have, like there's three things, and you get to control two. You've got quality quantity and cost. You get to control two of those. Quality, quantity, and cost. So if you want something very nice, but you want it cheap, well, it's not going to be very big, right? So here at Livingstone's Church, we always control cost. That is the factor in our domain. If there's a way to buy at a junkyard or in a consignment shop, I promise you Janae G. will have found it and purchased it there. Number five, you need to know we are in the middle of determining our vision plans and budgets for 2014. Like right, right now, we're in the middle of putting together our budgets and our plans for mission and vision for the next year. And Jeff Hammett wants to set the 2004 budget based on actual giving in 2013, which I think is smart. I think that's why. What that means is whatever we kind of in the end of this year have given, like that average, that's what we set for the budget in 2014. So here's what I need. I need someone to give $100,000 this morning to throw off those numbers and allow us to have a bigger budget in 2014. But if you would be praying for this process, it helps us to function in this house. And if you don't give, I mean like anything, I want to ask, would you please start? I mean, I don't care if it's just five bucks a week. Just start. And that would be great. It would help us in terms of moving forward in the house and its cost. Next thing here. So you are one of the most situationally specific, generous, generous churches I know. Like any need we've ever had, you have come through without exception. What I mean by that, like we want to do a, a, a playground. We want a Christmas offering for Monroe School. Like there's, without exception, you have always come through. You are one of the most situationally specific, generous churches I have ever encountered, and I like to brag about you quite a bit on it. When it comes to our weekly consistent offering and that generosity, statistically speaking, we're below average. 
I don't say that as an insult. I know demographics matter, but even the average church factoring in all those variables and demographics, it comes out to about $26 per person per week. That's the average giving in churches in America. What that means then is that our weekly tithes and offerings should be around $15,600 per week. And if you look at the back of your bulletin, it will list every week what our actual giving is. Our weekly budget is $9,500, and we will probably finish the year just barely coming in budget as planned. So, again, if you don't give on a weekly basis, I'm asking you to consider. If you could tithe, great. But I'm telling you, if you could just start with 5 bucks, that $5 added to somebody else's $5 added to somebody else's $5 allows us to do significant things. Next thing here, and I've said this before, but I want, it's important. We have no sugar daddies. Like some churches have a wealthy benefactor. They don't call them that, but someone who's really rich, and it seems like 50% of the budget really is taken care of by what it is that they give. 50% of our budget is not taken care of by one person. Everyone here is important because we have no sugar daddies. Now, having said that, if you're really rich and you want to be our sugar daddy, if you could meet me in the lobby afterwards, I'd be happy to talk to you. Just kidding. Last thing, and I'm going to close with this. When we have what we need, we won't beg for more. What I mean by that is we, it's finite. Like, it's not like, you know, here's millions. I'd probably take millions, but I don't know if we need it, right? I mean, it's like, here, I mean, here's our budget. Here's what we, God has called us to. Here's what we're trying to do. And the best illustration I can think of is, remember last year when we were talking about the playground, like we went to the playground? Like, we had planned to go into our Christmas Eve and have an offering so we could kind of pay for the playground. And as a church, you were so generous before the actual Christmas Eve service that we had everything that we needed. Like, you had raised enough money, you had given enough money to pay for the playground. So if you were here, you'll remember we were going to have a Christmas Eve offering, and we just canceled it. Like, they already, I mean, they gave. And so I just want you to know up front, this isn't like, hey, let's get a bunch of cash. And like, no, we are trying to do ministry, and when we have it, we won't beg. Like, there will be, there'll be nothing else. What God has called us to, we're trying to accomplish. I love this house. And I'm, and I'm excited to be here and serve in it. And I love to talk about this spiritual house that God has been building among us. Some of the most beautiful, screwed-up people I've ever met. But we're screwed-up people that God is crazy in love with. And I'm asking you to help make this house continue, not only to operate, but to expand with other living stoners who God will add to our number and then construct some more of the spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So if you're not, be a part of the house. Get involved and serve. serve. Help support the budget of this house to move forward greater things that are yet to be done because I could see it, like I could see it, and I believe There's a lot more that God wants to do in our neighborhoods, in our community, in our city. And so that's what we want from him, and that's what we expect. Let's go ahead. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Let's invite the band to come on back up here. The band's going to play a song, and as they do, you're going to see one of those chicken buckets go by your uh, row, and I don't think I need to say anything more about it. The reason why is everything I've just been talking about. So I'm urging you, if you can, be generous with the house. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for what you're doing here, for taking things that feel to us so small, like five loaves of bread and two fish and doing incredible things with it. And we trust that you will continue that. Help us to have hearts that are compassionate and grateful and generous. For the glory of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.
There's no one. 